Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where each week we're asking one of the speakers or presenters appearing at Hay 2021 to select their favourite moments from our archive. This time it's the turn of Rosie Goldsmith, former BBC journalist, writer, presenter and director of the European Literature Network. Hello there. My name is Rosie Goldsmith and I've been coming to the Hay on Wye Festival as an interviewer and audience member every year since 2009 when I was still with the BBC, except for one gap, pandemic year 2020, and I felt bereft. How I missed seeing all of you and and I missed the buzz and the mud and the laughter and those often impromptu but life-changing chats over coffee or wine those chance encounters with Michael Morpurgo or Salman Rushdie or Margaret Atwood, meeting your mothers and children and friends. I've had some of the most formative experiences of my life at Hay, and I'm eternally grateful to Peter Florence for inviting me to participate all those years ago. I've been nourished and entertained with words and insights from some of the world's best, brightest and funniest. It's been impossible. Now, we all say that, of course, but it's true to select only three events for this podcast. But each of my three choices also represents something broader for me. For my first choice, it's back in time to those early days when you still saw Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens hanging around the Windy Tents or Desmond Tutu or Toni Morrison. Memorable people and events. But I've chosen one event with Clive James in 2007. I worked with him briefly at the BBC, and what a charming, witty, moving, prolific critic and writer who only improved with age. His poetry before he died was sublime. But here he is in 2007, even before my time at Hay, talking about his most recent book then, Cultural Amnesia. Clive James is, for me, one of those great thinkers I wish I'd had the chance to interview at Hay. Here he is now. So cultural amnesia is really about what I've managed to remember from my lifetime of enjoying the arts. Uh, That's literature and music of every kind and painting of every kind, arts of every kind, creative things of every kind. One of my theories is that all the creative activities, up to and including high diving, down to and including figure skating, all come from the one impulse. They might achieve results of various complication, but basically uh, when Marvin Gaye sings, I heard it through the grapevine, and Beethoven composes one of the last quartets, they're working from the same impulse. They might have different results, but our engagement with those things tends to be equal at the time we're listening to them. In fact, one of the definitions of a work of art is it drives all the other works of art out of your head for as long as it lasts. This is one of the many theses that's proposed by a book which is unlikely to find favour among academic circles, uh, or indeed, indeed even among many critical circles. But it's done okay in the press, which matters a lot to a writer, because the, the press is the only thing that can really nowadays step between the writer and the public. And uh, so you, you, you still tend to read your reviews very carefully. And in America, of course, the review that matters most is in the New York Times, uh, and it's always by one woman. Uh, Her name is Michiko Kakutani, and uh, she sounds as if she planned the Pearl Harbor attack. (laughs) And her disapprobation could be a dreadful thing, and the awkward thing is her approbation sounds roughly the same. (laughs) Uh, Something about the way that that she writes. Um, For example, she called this book very accurately 
a commonplace book, because it is a commonplace book in the classic sense. A commonplace book is a book uh, in which you write down quotations from, from thing, books that you've read during your life with the intention either of just preserving them or commenting on them later, which the second thing was my intention. And uh, this is a tradition in English literature, the commonplace book. But Americans don't necessarily know that, and they tend to think that a commonplace book is a commonplace book, if you get me a not very interesting book. And she compounded this possibility of misinterpretation because her opening sentence is, she said, this is a very fat commonplace book. <laughs> and it was hard mentally not to supply a comma after very fat. This is a very fat commonplace book. In other words, this is an overweight, not very interesting book. And she was praising me. And as I read this praise, I thought, I'm dead. But it turned out uh, that uh, the, the book started to sell and did the same in Australia. And it looks like doing so here, which is a huge and, and pleasant surprise to me. What is it exactly? Well, it's a, it's a mishmash. Those critics who say it's got no shape and no direction are speaking nothing but the truth. Uh, I think it's got direction in the sense it goes everywhere. And it has got the shape in the sense that it's 900 pages thick and weighs two and a half pounds. And if you drop it on your foot, it'll impair your ability to walk. But it, uh, it, it, these criticisms are true. It is not organized like an ordinary book. It's meant to work the way my mind works, my mind such as it is and has always worked, which is to dart from one thing to another and try and take everything in. And I think a lot of people's minds work like that anyway, so that they might find reflected in this book the way they actually pay attention to the thing, to things in the world. So you might ask, why is it called cultural amnesia when there is so much in here that I've remembered? Well, the answer is, by implication, there's even more than I've forgotten. And I'm, what I'm saying in this book is that liberal democracy, which is the system of government that we inhabit, uh, all appearances notwithstanding, liberal democracy uh, is bound to entail a certain amount of amnesia. Uh, you can't remember everything. It's an extremely productive system. Uh, it's bewildering in what it produces. And nobody can remember it all. And it also has the drawback, which is part of its advantage, is that the next generation never quite realizes how unusual it is to have such a thing as liberal democracy. The next generation tends to think liberal democracy is normal. And that in a situation of chaos, we would revert automatically to liberal democracy, and, and I'm trying to say that, the, that that's by, by no means true. Liberal democracy is something very unusual. It had to be fought for against, against large and dangerous oppressive forces, especially in the 20th century, around the time when my generation was born, uh, in the late 30s, when the, the Nazis were at the height of their power, uh, and so was the Soviet Union and the two great contending totalitarian systems, later joined by a third, that of communist China, were preponderant in the world. Uh, if you added up their force of violence, it far exceeded that of the democracies. And uh, so there was by no means a foregone conclusion that what we now recognize as liberty would prevail. And one of the reasons we now recognize what liberty is, that we had such a vivid demonstration of what it wasn't. If this book doesn't prove that to the next generation, it doesn't prove anything. But I don't want to sound too solemn about it, because the book, I think, has a range not just, be <coughs> not just concerned with political events on that scale, but also with modern culture, because one of the ways that we forget, one of the ways that amnesia operates,
is that events get trivialized as they're remembered. They're caricatured, they turn into cartoons, and uh, I mentioned Pearl Harbor early on and got a laugh out of it because Pearl Harbor is, you know, happened long enough ago if it's almost a joke. And, um, and it's uh, transmitted to the next generation in the form of caricatures, or quite often through movies. For example, there was a movie called Pearl Harbor, one of the worst movies ever made. Um, it's mentioned several times in the book as a sort of acme of a nadir, as it were. If you can have such a thing as a focus, an apex of baseness, then, <laughs> then it was Pearl Harbor. But it, that demonstrates what can happen to an historic memory. It can turn into such a caricature that the essentials are forgotten. It's a book about that too. So it, when I'm talking about modern culture, and especially movies, I'm not essentially talking about necessarily talking about something irrelevant. I think I'm talking about something right on the subject. I never got the opportunity to interview Clive James before he died. And if anyone's listening, I'd still love to interview Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie or David Hockney. And, well, I've got a whole long list. But over 12 years of chairing events at Hay, there have been some incredible onstage moments which will stay with me forever. I remember interviewing Bernadine Evaristo about her novel Girl, Woman, Other and predicting in that moment that this book would win prizes way before it won the Booker Prize. And I remember those times when I walked on stage in the big hay tents with my rock star interviewees with Kate Adie, Marion Keyes, David Mitchell, Elif Shafak, Margaret Atwood, Victoria Hislop. Authors so adored by their readers that they received standing ovations even before they spoke. And equally hugely significant for me, running the European Literature Network and working with writers and translators from all over the world, are those times when I met them before they were famous. Karl Overknausgaard and Olga Tokarczuk are two now very famous European writers who leaped to mind and with whom I sat in small hay festival tents sharing microphones. But I knew even then that I was listening to pure gold. Here is the Polish author and Nobel Prize for Literature winner Olga Tokarczuk from May 2010 talking to me about her first novels in English, Primeval, and House of Day, House of Night, with her translator, the great Antonia Lloyd-Jones. I'm a person who very quickly gets bored. And once I'm finishing a book, I'm already bored with it. Dlatego lubię, żeby każda następna książka była naprawdę zadaniem, wyzwaniem dla mnie. So I want each new book to be a challenge for me. Well, I mean, this is the interesting thing when you say you get bored. Most of your, the two books that have been published in English after they were, I mean, the first one um, was House of Day, House of Night. And that was written in 1998 in Polish. Yeah. It was published in 2002 in English. And then the one that we're going to talk about today, Primeval, was written 1996. It's only just been published in English. So I can imagine it's a very, it's 13 years gap. You get bored. Quickly, you know, with the you do, do you go and read the English as well? No, Antonia. Ale rzeczywiście to jest też wyzwanie dla dla mnie, dlatego że ja tę książkę już ledwie pamiętam. And it's a challenge for me also because I can't remember those books very well anymore. Pamiętam, że to była, znaczy to jest bardzo ważna książka, która właściwie pozwoliła mi poczuć się pisarką. And, but Pravyek, Primeval, is a very important book that gave me a sense of actually being a writer. Mm -hmm. 
And it's your most popular book in Poland as well, Primeval. Tak, to jest bardzo popularna książka i jakby weszła też do kanonu lektur szkolnych. And it's a very popular book in Poland. It's even gone into the onto the school reading lists. Well, that's <laughs> is that an honor? Yes, I suppose it is. <laughs> of course, they, it is. they have to buy the book, don't they? <laughs> yes, they have to buy the book. Um, well, look, let's talk a little bit first of all about the House of Day, House of Night, which really, which really made your name. And that was where um, you'd been living. This sort of set your style a little bit. You'd been living in a in a, a small village on the Polish-Czech border, mm-hmm. and you are using then fragments and dreams and everyday life to describe the life. In this village. Mm-hmm. Tak, to była bardzo specyficzna sytuacja w moim życiu. That was a very specific situation in my life. Kupiłam dom, stary po niemiecki dom. I bought an old house left over from the Germans who used mm-hmm. to live in the area. W takim miejscu Polski, które nigdy nie należało przed wojną do Polski. In a part of Poland that never belonged to Poland before the Second World War. Więc jest to zadanie dla pisarki wymarzone, ponieważ dostaje kawałek kraju, który nie jest jeszcze opisany w żaden sposób. So it's a dream challenge, dream opportunity for a writer because you get to own a piece of land that's never been described before. Więc trzeba wymyślać historię, sny, legendy, właściwie trzeba zaludnić postaciami tę ten kawałek so kraju. So you have to think up history, dreams and populate for yourself this corner of the country. Miałam wrażenie, że jakby ten ta kotlina kłodzka, ten, ten właśnie kawałek kraju chce mi opowiedzieć w polszczyźnie tą jakby swoją starą historię, a ja jestem tylko medium, które to spisuje. And I felt as if this area, which is called Kotlina Kłodzka, wanted to tell me its story and I was acting as a medium telling it for it. Mm-hmm. But that, that was more, in a way it was autobiographical. Tak, oczywiście. Tam jest bardzo silna narratorka, postać, która, której ustami opowiadamy wszystko. Yes, that's absolutely right. There's a very strong female narrator who's telling the whole mm-hmm. story. And when you moved on to um, Primeval, which is, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful title, Primeval. It's called Primeval and Other Times. Mm-hmm. Now, times, obviously, in English, we can understand it as times, T-I-M-E-S, mm-hmm. but it's also chapters. There are 78 mini chapters in this book and primeval itself is a village a small town mm-hmm. and um, i think you, you described it right at the, right at the beginning the place at the center of the universe so is it a real polish town or is it the universe uh, a microcosm primeval to jest też praca antoni która to pięknie znalazła angielskie słowo na ten prawiek polski a, a word in English for Pravyek, which is the name of the village. Can I explain Yes, pl- please, yeah. It's actually a debatable point, and I've had other people tell me I'm completely wrong. But Pravyek, it is a real name of a place, isn't it, that yeah. you found? Mm-hmm. But it means time immemorial. So literally, the book is called Time Immemorial Before and, and Other Times. Stupid. And I thought, that doesn't really work. We have to mm-hmm. think of something that could almost be a small town in Oklahoma or something. Primeval Oklahoma, you can imagine. It, <laughs> so, um, that's the origin of the English title. But you, you use this 
uh, village, primeval, it, uh, to, to tell a much greater story about the history of Poland, mm-hmm. but also because you are, this, as the narrator, a kind of godlike figure or goddess-like mm-hmm. figure mm-hmm. sitting on a cloud looking at this village, mm-hmm. you're telling a story about belief and existence mm-hmm. and so on. I mean, it's an incredibly ambitious mm-hmm. novel. Tak, to prawda. Bardzo długo szukałam tego narratora, który będzie umiał opowiedzieć tak te 80 lat z historii kraju i i opowiedzieć historię też charakterów, które tam są, postaci. That's true. I spent a very long time looking for the right kind of narratorial tone, a narrator to tell 80 years of the country's history and, and also 80 years out of the lives of the characters in the book. I znalazłam e, taki głos, który może się wydać dziwaczny na początku. And I found a voice that might seem rather eccentric at first sight. Jest to trzecioosobowy narrator wszystko wiedzący, właśnie taki boginiczny, boski. And it's an all-knowing third-person narrator, exactly as you say, a sort of divine narrator. A z drugiej strony ten głos brzmi e, troszkę jakby dziecięco taki sposób jak baśń jak jak opowieść biblijna but at the same time the narratorial voice also sounds rather childlike fairy tale like or biblical even mm-hmm. więc y, to rozpięcie między tą tą baśniowością a, a, a wszystko wszystko wiedzą tego narratora myślę że też tworzy pewną taką narracyjną specyfikę tej książki and i think the tension between the fairy tale tone and the all knowing tone of the narrator's voice um, creates a very specific climate for the novel my third and sadly final choice is an ode to all the great wordsmiths and entertainers who come to Hay every year. I've had some really great laughs sitting in the audience watching Marcus Brigstock and Hugh Dennis and Shappy Corsandi and Josie Lawrence. And these guys, David and Ben Crystal, the professor of linguistics and the classical actor, father and son, not known as stand-up comics, But when they discuss their books on Shakespeare and the English language, that is what they do. They stand up and simultaneously educate and entertain with their banter, their anecdotes, their intelligence and eloquence. It's hard to choose one David and Ben double act, as there are several in the Hay Festival archive. But here is one from the winter weekend in November 2014. David and Ben are discussing their co-written book, You Say Potato, a book of accents. About, well, most of you can see my face. And I look like a young chap, don't I? So let's say about 10 years ago, I came home from school. By the way, he's he's Ben and I'm David. And and he's the son and I'm the father. I I, I have to say this because some people think I look so young that, that, you know, they get comfortable. Hello. And I'm the funny one, and he's the... <laughs> so, yeah, uh, let's say um, 10 to 15 years ago, I was coming home from school. And... Uh, cheeky cow. I, and I, I walked into the kitchen, and for some reason my dad wasn't at his computer, but was sitting at the kitchen table. And I... Uh, 
uh, grumbled to him instead of my mum because he was around. And I said, geez, it's just, you know, I've, I've just got my new uh, timetable in and the schedule's all over the place. I've got double, what, what, double what, German. What did you say? Frau Schmidt. And that's ben, what did not you say? her real name. What did you say, Ben? I've got a double, uh, uh, I've just got a bad schedule this time. I've you got, got a double what, German. Ben? Dad, have you been on the source? I've got a double, I've got a double German session with Frau Schmidt, and, and she's such a pain. The schedule is all the, over the what, place. Ben? The schedule. Schedule. Yeah, you know, it's like a timetable. Yeah. Ben. Schedule. Yeah, the schedule. 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 This is how it started. Mm. You see, I had never heard him say that before. This was the first time, nor any of his friends, as a matter of fact. These days, that pronunciation of schedule or schedule has been around for so long that, you know, we've sort of got used to it. But at the time, this was a first for me. I hadn't heard that American pronunciation come into British English before. And that was intriguing me. To be fair, it's, it's not that Dad would have corrected me back then. Dad has always been a descriptive linguist rather than a prescriptive one, so he would lock me in the shed and put the electrodes on for completely different reasons, but yeah. nothing to do with the words that I spoke or how I pronounced yeah. them, I'm pleased to say. Yeah. So my question, you see, as a linguist was, where did he get it from? I mean, Ben had never been to America apart from a small trip to Disneyland when he was about... Yeah, high to a knee hop yeah. or whatever. Um, so he, he couldn't have heard, he, he didn't know real Americans at all. So it must have been the television or the radio, I guess. This was pre-internet, remember, really, so it couldn't have been there. Now, bearing in mind that uh, a year or so ago when we started writing this book, and I, uh, I think I was, I was finishing another book somewhere uh, and, and just came up with the idea of... of of, 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 of rewriting this, this exchange between us so many years ago. And my memory was that I heard it in Friends, right? Because I was uh, in school, I was <coughs> actually in school in the mid-90s, um, and Friends was a big thing then, and everybody was watching it, and so it must have been something like Friends. Now, you've got to be careful saying things like this around <laughs> my father. Because, you see, that started me off. I have now read every script of Friends <laughs> to see if the word schedule turns up there. We should have said Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't reading Playboy in the 1980s. Well, were I wasn't you? reading it. No. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, fortunately, all those uh, friend scripts are now online, you see. So if you can trust the online version, I read through the lot. And you know what I found? Not a single instance of the word schedule in any of them. Oh, just the first series, by the way, because, which is the one we're talking about. Not one. So it couldn't have been friends, which was both good news and bad news, because what it meant was I now had to look at all the scripts of all the other shows that Ben might have watched to see where he would have encountered the word schedule. And Frasier eventually, and The Simpsons. Yeah. And, and eventually me. I found it. Yes, it was being used fairly frequently on those shows at that particular time. So you must just have been watching too much television. Did you pass any of your exams ever? 
I don't remember. I've got like a 30-second memory now, thanks to television. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but it, I remember also, I mean, it, it, it was definitely interesting growing up, because my, not just dad being a linguist, but my mother uh, was a, trained as a speech therapist, and language and, and linguistics and accent, and dad frowning in an interested way when I would say that something was wicked because it was good, and what does that mean? And, you know, language was always such a... Uh, a, a, a tea time topic, I suppose. You know what the latest one is from from Africa. You know, it's, what is it's, it? It's brutal, brutal, brutal. Yeah, it's not wicked anymore. Wicked's history. Brutal, brutal. All right, yeah, okay, that's, that's good. Right. I, I that that means day. you're cooler than I am now. But it was also around the same time that Dad would tell me that, uh, you know, which isn't necessarily entirely... Well, it is kind of accent-related, because there was the time when people would learn... A lot of people around the world were learning their English on CNN, and, and it was called, what, CNNese? CNNese. CNNese. Yeah. CNNese, yeah, that's right. Like Chinese, CNNese. Mm. That's right. Um, and that, I suppose, was the beginning, or at least yeah. it was the beginning of the time, because for those of you that know, Dad and I have written together before. This is the first time that we've written together for 10, uh, 12 years or so. Um, but that was the first sort of moment that I suppose I dipped a, 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 a linguistic or metaphorical toe into his linguistic pool. That's not wow. a good analogy, is yeah. it? Is that a script you've done? That's yeah. the kind of crap that I write sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... it's um, yeah, and it's a dialogue. This book, and as it is now, indeed, that's how the book starts with that schedule schedule um, discussion. Uh, you have to have two people to write a book about accents. It seems to me, because when Ben first came up and said, you know, he's got this idea, um, I, I thought, no, it's not really possible to write a book about accents. You can talk a book about accents, certainly, but how do you write them down? You know, this is always very, very hard. But on the other hand, having two authors, one of whom is slightly younger than the other, um, to write a book, very useful, because none of us, no one of us, has an intuition about all the accents that turn up in the country, or for that matter, in the world. And my intuitions about accents are a generation ahead of Ben's. And so, if you want a book... If you want... <laughs> all right, two generations ahead of Ben's. So if you want a book about accents that reaches... <laughs> that reaches out... <laughs> reaches out to everybody, um, you, you need two people, and one ought to be a different age from the other. This was something that we'd, we'd sort of uh, um, taken advantage of before with our Shakespeare work. You know, it's useful having Dad as a... Ling as a he was a 50-something linguist once, um, and me as a... T as a used to be a 20-something actor. And... Um, we have two such very different approaches to, to the world of accents. Dad, um, as it were, well, I mean, I suppose to describe what we do in the book is I will describe the ac the, the, what the, the car of the accent looks like, and then Dad sort of looks underneath the hood and explains the engine a little bit more. And um, if, if you'll follow yeah, me. That's, a, that's quite a good metaphor. It's actually. not bad. It's yeah, not great. But yeah. it's, it's um, you know, I'm making it up as I go along. I'm yeah. a very, you know, free thing. Anyway, stop interrupting. Yeah. I, um, uh, the, the, the <laughs> it's only on stage I can get away with talking to my dad like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he gets away with it in the book as well. I just, <laughs> we, we were having a row one day about something or other about, to do with the book. About the bit in the middle of the book where we talk about the map. Uh, the accent map. The yeah. accent map. Um, and he, Ben says he wants an accent map. And I say, it's impossible. You can't do an accent map. It's too complicated. It can't be done. And he says, yes, it can. And I say, no, it can't. He goes backwards and forwards. We're shouting at each other by this point. Yeah, yeah. And about two minutes in, I say, why are you writing all this down? 
I'm transcribing the argument whilst we're having it. And the argument is in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed my selection for this podcast. I've certainly enjoyed listening to these great voices again and exploring the Hay Festival archives. See you for more great Hay moments online and in person. Take care. Rosie is appearing at Hay 2021 with the Icelandic writer Sean on the 5th of June. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can hear thousands of other recordings over on the Hay Player on our website.